You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site and you can find all of our episodes over on firstpaw.media and under social media under the same name. And I am joined tonight by a canine enthusiast. His name is Dermetrios. Capocranitis, I believe is how you say it, and I'll have him correct me when we introduce him here. He is calling in from Vermont. He is a fancier of the Sepala Siberian, and we have that in common for sure. Both of us uh, have a mutual friend, Jonathan Hayes, from up in Maine, who we got our dogs from, and I am excited to learn a little bit more about his dog and the Sepala as we move forward. Demetrios, how is it going tonight? Uh, what's happening up in your neck of the woods? I'm good, Robert. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, not a lot here. We have three dogs in the house, and they're all snoozing right now, which um, is is pretty pretty much where we want things at, at 9 p.m. my time. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Very privileged. Uh, been a fan of the podcast for a long time, so. Well, thank you for, for joining us, and uh, we're going to give some kudos to our buddy Jonathan for, for making that connection and uh, getting you on the show. So I guess we're going to dive right into this. Uh, you and I have been talking for a while now, and you are um, doing quite a bit of historical research on the Sepala Siberian. As I mentioned, both of us have fallen in love with that breed. We both have uh, younger pups, if you will, from from Jonathan's kennel up there in Maine. Let's start with that. How in the world did you did you go down that Sepala Siberian rabbit hole uh, compared to all the other types of sled dogs there are out there? Yeah, it, it is a rabbit hole. It's a good question. So, um, summer of 2018, I got my first husky. I wanted a husky pretty much as as long as I could remember. And so I got um, just a companion, uh, a pet Siberian husky, AKC Siberian husky. And he's a great dog. But after a couple years of having him, I really had a, a desire to dive more into kind of what made the Siberians um, famous and popular and really the the driving factor in all of that was uh, mushing was the sport and the the utility of uh, dog sledding um and that of course led me to dive a little bit more into the history of the famous serum run up in alaska i think most people know the sort of uh, surface level story with the uh, the antitoxin being rushed to Nome um, and, and Balto finishing off that run. But uh, through that, I dove a little bit more into the specific history of the dogs that were on Sepala's team. And I, I sort of found out that, you know, there are some carefully held and carefully stewarded uh, lineages, even within the broader uh, category of Siberian sled dogs and, and the Siberians that we have today. And so that's I kind of haven't looked back much. Um, I work with a with a wonderful kennel of AKC Siberian Huskies, so I kind of I have a love for all sled dogs, but a really rich history and um, and and sometimes sort of hidden, tucked away history of the Sepala Siberian in particular is something that has definitely grabbed me and and kept me. 
A hundred percent agree with you. I started out uh, with my first Siberian Husky, AKC Siberian Husky, way back in 1987. His name was Axel. And before you know it, I had a team of Siberians and was, uh, you know, doing the musher thing and had a sepala here and there over the years. But my first one that I truly fell head over heels with was, uh, was my pup that I got from Jonathan. Uh, I guess it's uh, about a year and a half ago now. Her name is Eselt. And boy, I tell you what, I've been around dogs my entire life. And this is definitely a different type of dog than, than I'm used to. And, and I'm sure you would agree with that. This is not your typical Siberian, is it? No, they, they really are something special um, and definitely something apart. Uh, when we, so my, my pup is about nine months old now um, and her name is Kismet. And when we brought her home, I think within the first 10 minutes of being in our um, our little apartment here, she had figured out pretty much everything there was to figure out about the about the home. She knew where all the water came from. She knew where the food was stored, um, and she had pretty well figured out where she was going to sleep and call home base. But uh, she ran right to our bed. She knew where the where the humans were, and and she definitely has that close bond with us. That you know, some Siberians are really affectionate and love people but there's a, a definitely a more specific sort of bond and attention to um to their people that i have seen in the sepals that i know and i you know we could we could spend the rest of the uh, the episode time talking about the little nuances and the differences but it's hard to know for sure unless you've known both and and seen the distinctions hundred percent. Again, I'm going to probably say that several times in, in our conversation tonight. I don't know if you know this, but I am sort of a, a, an amateur historian, if you will, about dog breeds. I, I live and breathe dogs 24 uh, seven as a dog breeder or excuse me, a trainer, uh, dog musher, just about everything in life revolves around dogs. And when you talk about the sepala and sort of this little known history or sort of, um, closed history, if you will, you know, that, that not a lot of people know about. I think that that's a very similar story to a lot of the more obscure breeds out there. I guess there's well over 200 that are recognized by the AKC alone. Of course, we're talking mainly to an American audience. There's other dog breeds, obviously, around the world, but most people are familiar with the American Kennel Club because that's what is promoted here in the U.S. But it is sort of a very niche breed when we talk about this Sepala uh, line of Siberian, so much so of a niche breed that they are not part of the American Kennel Club right now, even though they have a history that dates back further than what we know today as the Siberian Husky. And that leads me to my next question, Demetrios. I, I saw your blog post that you wrote over on our buddy Jonathan's uh, website. I believe it's mushmain.com is, is, his, um, is his website. If not, we'll definitely link it up in the show notes and you give a, a relatively brief history of of the sepala and one dog in particular a white dog what was that dog's name yeah i i've always pronounced it juani uh of cold river juani of cold river i don't know if that's accurate and i'm not sure that anyone is still around uh today that's uh, that that met that dog in person and could tell us for sure how it's pronounced but yeah, that that dog is um, it's actually one of my favorite little pieces of Sepala history. So I can uh, I can expand or I can, you know, folks can read the blog post and find out a little bit about um, Juani of Cold River themselves. But yeah, well, let, let's let's just talk a little bit about the history, because I think that that is such a fascinating story. You talked a little bit about the serum run, obviously uh, a, a big story up here in Alaska. Uh, we've we've done the serum run here in in our kennel a couple of years ago. We're planning on hopefully to do it again uh, in in the coming years. So that is a very familiar story to a lot of people, mainly because of the story of Balto, who you mentioned. Obviously, every kid in America has probably seen the animated version of Balto. And then there was a much better telling of the story just a couple of years ago with Togo 
on Disney Plus. Of course, it had that Disney spin to it. And of course, there's been many other stories over the years about this amazing line of dogs that uh, was brought over from a guy who happened to have the same name, of course. Leonard Seppala brought them over to Alaska, raced them for, for many years, then did the serum run, then took them back to your neck of the woods. And that's sort of how uh, the story comes full circle with our buddy Jonathan and Poland Springs and all of that. But it is everything in between where it gets murky because just like in any dog breed, Demetrios, it, 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 it splinters very quickly. I mean, you could literally splinter a dog breed in, in a matter of about six months, you get a couple of dogs together from one line from the other, you have a litter of puppies and all of a sudden you have an offshoot of one line or the other, but the Sepala Siberian, and it's, it's, not unlike or like a lot of other uh, miscellaneous type breeds out there, uh, they, they're sort of holding it kind of closed-fisted, aren't they, in terms of breeding? There's not a lot of action, if you will, uh, in the Sepala breed, is there? No, that, that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, and really, I think a lot of that uh, stems from originally uh, dating, like you mentioned even before AKC recognition of the Siberian Husky as a breed, there was kind of a more tight uh, gene pool um, that included a lot of the dogs from Leonard Seppala's serum run team and dogs descended from them. And uh, within the Siberian Husky breed, Seppala's had their own place, but by a, a number of breeders, they were kept separate. Um, you know, they had certain reasons for that. They had certain qualities and certain um, you know, ancestry that they wanted to make sure that all their dogs traced back to. Um, but it also meant that the gene pool was smaller and that they had to be more careful and, and more intentional with a lot of their breeding choices. Um, and not everyone carried on those specific lines. There wasn't necessarily the breadth of breeding stock to do that. And so they've become more scarce. And just by that, by virtue of that, there's not as many litters bred. There's not as much, uh, as you said, action going on um, as far as breeding of the cephalas. But it's definitely still, definitely still there, not nearly as much as you might think of uh a lot of a lot of purebred dog breeds and it, it's it, it's interesting as we're talking about this i'm unsure where this episode should go i don't know if it should go on our mushing radio feed or our dog works radio feed because i think it would fit very nicely on both sides obviously dog mushers are familiar with working lines of dogs and are very familiar with what they're looking for in a breed of dog or a, a choice of dog, if you will. But then on the other side, everybody is very familiar with what a Siberian Husky is, what they look like, what they're supposed to be quote unquote bred to do. So it's really both sides of the coin there. And you talked about that AKC uh, recognition of a Siberian. If I remember correctly, I think that goes way back to the early 1930s, if I'm not mistaken, is when uh, they started to get recognition, at least by the American Kennel Club. And that was only a few short years after uh, the the fabled serum run with Seppala and Togo and Balto and, and all of those dogs there. So they sort of have this linear history. But as we said, it is sort of that offshoot is where you're getting this and I'm not saying this lightly, a really hardcore type working dog. And, and you talked about it with, with your girl, Kismet. She is a definitely, definitely a different dog than your typical Siberian. Have you ever owned? Oh, you, actually, you did. I, I guess I should rephrase that. You, you've worked with um, purebred Siberians. Is that right? You said that in the intro? Yeah, and, and they're wonderful dogs, but there is definitely, I mean, even beyond working ability, I think that there's there's qualities that, um, set her apart that I can that I can see, um, and I I believe it it was 1930. Um, you mentioned the early 1930s, and 1930 I believe was the recognition by the American Kennel Club of Siberian Huskies. The interesting part of sort of where this 
I guess you could call it a breed split or a delineation um, between Sepala Siberians and what would become mainstream Siberian Huskies happened around the same time. Um, and as you mentioned, that was only a few years after that 1925 serum run. What a lot of folks don't know is that the Poland Spring Kennel that Leonard Sepala established up in Maine didn't last very long. They did a lot of breeding. They worked with a lot of um, mushers and working dog folks in the New England area, but it only lasted a few years. And after those few years were up, you know, at the time, the breed wasn't recognized by any kennel club. So there wasn't a lot of registration uh, involved of the dogs, if any. But when they were finished, uh, a lot of the remaining dogs, when they closed out their direct involvement with um with the kennel they referring to leonard seppala and his partner at the time elizabeth ricker uh, they actually sold the kennel a lot of the core breeding dogs and the the rights to the seppala kennel's name to a canadian musher named harry wheeler and harry wheeler was really sort of the uh he was sort of the first holder of the philosophy that gave way to the sepal is being separate because a lot of well really all mainstream siberian huskies have some influence from leonard sepal's dogs that's impossible to uh to deny but harry wheeler sort of constructed this philosophy of the only dogs he wanted to to keep and sort of see on into the future with his lines were dogs that came directly from Sepala's Poland Spring Kennel um, during that during that buyout or dogs that were directly descended from them. So there were a small handful of dogs that came from other places in Alaska and that were still working dogs in, in a lot of senses. But Harry Wheeler's, I guess, philosophy and his ideology was that he really wanted to preserve the specific um, core gene pool that came right from Sepala's kennel at Poland Springs. And um, do, that you, that well. do you know when that was, Demetrios? So what year or around what year uh, Harry Wheeler got involved? That would have been 1930, 1931. Um, it's tough to know exactly because some of this stuff happens you know, at the beginning of the season or at the end of the season. So it's sort of up in the air as to when the sale took place. Uh, I might actually be wrong about that. There might be, there might be a definitive date with uh, sales records. Um, and there are a few really good books uh, that, that would tell me um, for sure, but it would have been either 1930 or 1931. And Leonard Seppala had a little bit of involvement uh, from afar when he went back to Alaska for a couple of years, but eventually he he passed the torch on to Wheeler and um, and Wheeler worked with a few others, uh, but that was really when the changing of hands happened. And, and as we mentioned at the top of this, this is a very, uh, straight line course of history with a lot of other type of breeds as well. Very similar story. If you were to talk to German shepherd fanciers or uh, Labrador fanciers or great Danes or whatever, uh, often you will hear a very similar story to what Demetrius is talking about with this uh, line of, of Siberians and or Sepalas as, as we're known today. And of course there's a lot of division, a lot of gossip, a lot of, uh, back and forth that could go on not only with the Sepala, but also the Siberian Husky or any other myriad breed that we could talk about. But it's interesting how it becomes such a closely guarded, I don't want to call it a secret, Demetrios, but it's almost that, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like a really good book that you're dying to share with, with, with the world but you don't want everybody to know the story. It's sort of like that, isn't it? It's just, it's that, it's that, I don't know the the best metaphor to pick, but wouldn't you agree it's sort of like that? That's a, that's a good one. I like that metaphor. It's sort of, it's like a, I mean, I say this because I'm obviously really passionate, but it's sort of a treasure. Um, you want a treasure. You yeah. You want to keep it special and you want everyone to know about it because you care about it that much. But, um, you know, there's a part of it that's delicate um, and that you don't 
necessarily want to have thrown in with everything else, which makes diving into the history of it a little tough sometimes, uh, but still enjoyable and, and not tough enough for me to be able to stay away from it at all. And of course, uh, in the last almost hundred years now, when you talk about, uh, of course, Seppala moving on and, and Wheeler getting involved in the early 30s, that's a lot of history and a heck of a lot of potential dog breeding over those years. I mean, if you guys think about it, a, a dog can literally have two litters a year. So they could multiply by the thousands uh, very quickly and dilute a breed very easily in just a very short amount of time. And we're thinking about a hundred years of dog history. That's a long time. And what's interesting about the Seppala is it's still only held by just a handful of Seppala fanciers. And, and, and I know you guys are hearing that word fancier, and that's why I'm kind of parlaying, should we put this on mushing radio or dog works radio? Fancier is, is a term for folks that are, are invested heavily in one way or the other with a typical breed. And that's what they're called sort of in the show world, the working world or whatever. But do you know right off the bat, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but do you know how many kennels are, are actively involved right now, at least in, in sort of the public record, if you will? It's only a handful, isn't it? That's a, that is a really hard question to answer. And, and at the, you know, just to save myself the risk of, of going wildly off numbers, I won't give a an estimate, but I think a handful is a really a solid sort of term to wrap it up. Yeah, it's really just, um, it's just a small, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of purebred dogs and, and especially sled dogs, it's a pretty small group um, that are that are dedicated to the sepulas as distinct. And not everyone necessarily feels that they are distinct from the Siberian Husky, uh, which is an understandable perspective, but I certainly do. And I think a lot of the folks who um, dive into the history and or get involved with them directly definitely see the, the distinctions. And of course, most of the people that are involved with the Seppala are at least trying to hold on to the working aspect of, of this breed of dog, the Seppala Siberian, because as we talked about uh, your pup and my pup, Iselt, uh, and and we've had Siberians, as I mentioned, for, for many, many years. It is definitely a working type dog. And they are, and you hear this term all the time, and I'm sure you would agree with me. They are they are different. They're they're wired different than than your typical dog. Uh, they are literally born to run. And I think that that's uh, what holds that distinction definitely over the Siberian uh, itself, the AKC Siberian. I'm sure you would agree with that. Yeah, I have a, a friend who um, is also a Seppala fancier and has just a, a wealth of knowledge. And her, the way she sort of defines what what really makes a Seppala, she calls uh, the three Ps. Pedigree, which is that ancestry, you know, tracing back um, specifically in, in the way that the International Sepala Siberian Sled Dog Club recognizes meets the threshold to, to be recognized as a Sepala. So that ancestry, pedigree, um, phenotype. So, you know, the structure and the, the overall type, some traits in terms of appearance. Uh, and the third one is performance. Um, so their ability to perform in harness and their sort of taking to that naturally is definitely one of the pillars of what makes a sepala what they are. And uh, from from what I've seen from from the uh, sepala folks that I know, or at least uh, have come across in, in my years of being involved with the sport, they're highly capable of doing that. And I think that uh, many of those folks are definitely uh, doing their best to to hold on to those three Ps. And I think that's important distinction. I guess the big question here, Demetrios, is, is it, and and uh, this is kind of a rhetorical question more than, than not, is it really worth the effort? Because uh, it's such a, a, a long hill to climb, you know, with, with having this, this very niche breed with just a handful of of, uh, of breeders out there or fanciers or um, 
uh, cohabitors of this breed, is it worth it to sort of hang on to this historical legacy? And if it is, in your opinion, why? Why is it important to hold on? It's a great question, Robert. Um, it's hard for me to answer because the, the answer is such a natural and resounding yes. Uh, for me, I felt I felt called um, to see that as worthwhile really you know kind of how we started out talking through the history there's just so much rich dedication people devoted their entire lives to seeing um the sepala siberian through as something distinct and special um just to name a few people like harry wheeler like we mentioned um william shearer Jeffrey Bragg in the 1970s, who really brought the the breed back from a, kind of a genetic crisis, uh, and a couple of others who worked with him. Um, Douglas Willett, who really brought the Sepulas back as a, a force on the race trail in the 1970s and all the way through into the 2000s. So many people have dedicated so much of their time and energy and lives to you know, upholding the principles that Wheeler took on when he took over the kennel. Um, and I just think that it's like we like we said, uh, it's a treasure. And to lose that dedication in the the mix of um, all the logistics that it would take to to do it and that falling by the wayside would just be to me a tragedy. So I I find it really hard to to answer that with anything other than a resounding yes. But uh, I definitely had people ask uh, and and talk about that. It was like you know that that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of dedication. But um, you know an, another recent uh, move of dedication was all the folks who decided that it was worthwhile to reboot the International Sepala Siberian Sled Dog Club and really see it through as this organized force. Um, to keep the breed going and and keep those three P's and all the things that uh, Sepulos kind of mean to people alive and well and thriving. Uh, I was actually elected to the board of directors for the club uh, this year, and I'm trying my best to really put a lot of action behind the things that we can do to preserve them um, and make sure that a couple of generations from now, we can still show people some of these dogs and we can we can talk about them as something that endured the test of time rather than just a piece of history. And of course, uh, with that, uh, the logistics can be uh, surmountable in one way or another, just trying to get uh, all of that uh, in line so everything works well. I, I guess a question I have, and we only have time for one or two more. We could probably talk about this forever. And and for folks that are listening, sure. there there is a very good chance that Demetrios is, is wanting to start a podcast about uh, this breed. And and I'm definitely encouraging that. And, and there is a, a spot for sure with a very niched down podcast. That's exactly uh, the, the medium for that. So uh, we'll definitely talk about that off air uh, another day for sure. But uh, Demetrius, now that you're involved with the board, obviously you've been involved with with your own dog and, and with some of the, the breeders around the country, outside of the United States and of course uh, in Canada uh, in terms of international reach, how is the breed perceived elsewhere, say in Europe or Australia, New Zealand, other places where there may be sled dog enthusiasts? What is the stance of a sepala in, in, in that uh, area of the world outside of, of, our, of our little world here in North America? That's a really good question. Um, I think I, I know of uh, small pockets of a small sepala kennel here or there, um, a couple in Europe. Uh, in a lot of those places, I didn't really touch on this before with the history, but um, for a majority of its history, uh, the Sepala Siberian was sort of a breed within a breed. Uh, and when AKC recognition came around for the Siberian Husky in the 1930s, Sepalas were just sort of this subgroup that people kept um, 
within the breed. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that uh, the Continental Kennel Club, um, which is the clubs are the International Cephalus Siberian Sled Dog Club's um, partner registry, recognized the cephalus as distinct. So a lot of dogs that would fit the definition of a cephala and, and might qualify um, in the club's eyes are probably still registered as um, Siberian Huskies uh, or seen as Siberian Huskies, even though they have this uh, distinct lineage and, and purpose bred history behind them. Um, I don't know necessarily uh, what all of the kennel clubs sort of worldwide, how they see that, but I do know that the Continental Kennel Club is the only one that recognizes the Sepala Siberian specifically. Um, but it's not just us here that that recognize them um, in a spirit sort of sense. Uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it, it, the best way you can. Obviously, it's, it's a very difficult uh, task to, to sort of grab a hold of is trying to figure out where where dogs lie around the world. And I think a really good example of this, Demetrios, is with the German Shepherd. Uh, in, in the German Shepherd world, you have the American German Shepherd, and it has a very distinct look. It has that sloped back, and it's, you know, a, a much richer uh, coloring than the the European Shepherds. And, of course, you have your offshoots in Europe as well, the, the Czech lines and the German lines and, you know, the, the Eastern European lines and all of that. And when I'm thinking about the Seppala, I, I see that story— uh, played out there as, as, as with the German shepherd, uh, because as you know, um, those are two very distinct breeds, at least in, in terms of performance. Uh, whereas the American shepherd has, has been bred now to work, but they've also been bred very heavily to, to be show dogs and pet dogs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's night and day between a very hardcore working type German shepherds, say from from the Czech Republic, compared to a very um, show oriented or obedience oriented or pet oriented American shepherd. I'm sure you would agree with that. Yeah, I. That's at least in my eyes. That's one of the the beauties of the Cephala Siberian is, you know, to the extent that I'm aware of, anybody who's involved with the breed to some degree has still put performance. Um, at the top or very close to the top of their list um, in terms of what they what they see as special uh, in the breed. So they've never been bred for the show ring specifically. I think there might be a handful of cephalos who've been shown um, at different points in history. There were uh, a number of um, Siberian Huskies who were cephalos that uh, registered as Siberian Huskies that were sepulas that maybe got their show championship, but that was never the the purpose behind their breeding. Um, in a lot of cases, that was just sort of for the leisure of the owners. Um, so that's one thing that I, I think is pretty special. I think what you pointed out about the geographical splits um, is really important. Um, and at least with the sepulas that are sort of um, around now, it's given us some versatility in terms of well, it's a breed with a small gene pool. We at least have some little pockets that we can bring lines back together, which has started to happen uh, in different kennels already. Uh, My Girl Kismet is um, sort of part of an effort to bring a couple of lines together that will help with that diversity. Um, and hopefully for genetic reasons, that's helpful. Um, but it, it also makes the logistics tough. Um, like you mentioned before, knowing where the dogs are and, and kind of what's gone into them can be hard when they're spread out like that. And am I correct? And I said we're almost out of time, but of course we could definitely go on and on. Am I correct that, that it's almost a, an east-west split uh, with the Sepala? There's sort of this... Um, uh, way of thinking about uh, the dogs that came out here from out west compared to out uh, in your neck of the woods in the east. There's, there's, uh, there's a, there is or there was a pretty big division within the breed. Is that right? Correct. There was, and and to a lesser degree, I think also um, uh, 
a United States and a, and a Canadian divide. Uh, I'm really glad to say that we're seeing some of that uh, not close, but people sort of starting to, to heal that division um, and really use the dogs that we have to, um, to strive for better genetic health, bring some of those lines together and, and just breed better dogs and hopefully um, foster some really good relationships that might have fallen by the wayside. Uh, the, Sepala, the International Sepala Siberian Sled Dog Club board also voted to uh, close the stud book for the registry, but in doing that, we uh, we've been able to grandfather in some of the lines that people haven't necessarily been able to incorporate, um, and hopefully we have both a clearer idea of what a sepala really is, and also at the same time, although it sounds sort of um, contradictory, we have a a broader base. Uh, to work with and, and a broader community and we can kind of all work towards the same goal with more resources. So for, for our average listener uh, who is just a, a dog lover, probably has a dog sitting at their feet right now, probably not a Sepala uh, like you and I have, but probably a lab or a golden retriever or a German shepherd or a doodle or something. When they hear that term close the stud book, I think that they would immediately go to, oh my goodness, there's not going to be any more breeding of these dogs. They're essentially closing the book on them. Can you give us a more formal definition of what that means, especially for our more novice listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for the purposes of the Sepala, uh, for a lot of important genetic reasons, um, Siberian huskies from working lines uh, were used as what we call outcrosses for sepalas. So to add a dog that fits a lot of the sepala traits, but doesn't necessarily have the same genetic background um, into a breeding program to add some diversity, make sure you get away from, um, you know, problems that could be caused by inbreeding with a small gene pool. Um, and that's been something that's a, that's a tool that's been used for, uh, a long time now um, to keep the genetic health of the breed in good shape. Uh, when I say close the stud book, we decided this year that um, crosses, I guess you would call them, uh, we were going to be more selective about them. So we decided to close the stud book, but we actually are going to have a much more um, specific and thorough process by which we choose which uh, dogs that aren't sepalas yet, but will be able to help contribute uh, to the breed. And we're definitely still going to be uh, be breeding the dogs and, and there won't be uh, any sort of closing in of, uh, of the gene pool. And actually it will make things a lot easier um, in terms of deciding what we want to bring in and what can help the breed from a genetic standpoint. So if, if I'm not mistaken, what that realistically means, if, if you are trying to register a litter of puppies and you're claiming that they are sepalas, and if my neighbor across the street happens to have a what he is claiming to be a sepala Siberian, you would have to do some type of genetic testing. You know, everybody can do that now with Embark and, and all of these other types of places. But he would have to have that. Uh, say he gets together with with my dog, Isolt, who is a, uh, a registered uh, Sepala. Uh, would that be what you're talking about? So if my neighbor has one and they want to breed together and we want to register these guys as Sepalas, you would have to have some type of genetic marker or something like that? Is that what you're saying? It wouldn't be based on genetic markers. Um, I mean, that that's something that we might see in the future uh, as far as how we can identify that. But for right now, um, it would just mean that any dog that's already registered uh, as a purebred Sepala Siberian sled dog, which uh, for a long time had um, the parameters were based on sort of a, a percentage of their pedigree going back to those uh, those Harry Wheeler dogs, um, or some dogs before them, actually. But we've decided that uh, as a club and as a board, we decided, you know, all the dogs that already meet that purebred threshold 
they are in good shape and they're enough for us to work with. Um, any dogs that don't already meet that, so Kismet and Isolt already meet that threshold, but dogs that aren't at that point, maybe they have some Sepala influence or are, you know, from a completely different background, um, we would sort of review the process of whether or not we want to let uh, that breeding influence into uh, the stud book. Whereas for a long time, it's sort of been open and folks have bred back up to that percentage. Uh, but we've decided to sort of just define purebred sepalas as sepalas um, and decide on a case-by-case -case basis what else we want to use to, to help further the breed. And I guess to, to, to be a devil's advocate with that, if it is in fact my neighbor and he does not have Sepalus, he ha actually has <laughs> Siberians, but uh, if my neighbor was to do that breeding, as long as we didn't register that, that, that litter with the Sepala Club, it, didn't, it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things if we weren't looking for that registration, I guess is, is the question. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, there might be folks that that make that choice. I I think like we talked about before, we all we all love our own dogs, and we all love dogs for different reasons. Um, it certainly isn't a, a way for us to control anybody's uh, breeding choices. We we want people to have the dogs that they love, but um, as a as a breed, we decided that uh, we want to sort of define them qualitatively, I guess. Um, and, and move on from there. So hopefully that answers your question. Oh yeah. And, and as I said, we could, we could definitely talk about this probably for hours and hours, just in, just sort of going down, as we said, uh, the, the rabbit holes of, 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 of dog breeding and working dogs and all of that. It's such a fascinating topic. Demetrios, if, if you don't mind, I would like to keep you just for a couple more minutes. I don't know if I sent you over my list of questions that I ask all of my guests, but uh, would you mind giving it a shot if I didn't send those over? Um, go for it. Go for it. Okay. All right. So since this could potentially be a show on mushing radio, and I have not figured out exactly where to put this yet, uh, and you were involved with the dog sledding uh, sport uh, with with your dogs, you said you work with a, a kennel of dogs as well as your own and Canacross and all that. From your perspective, where do you see the sport in the next five or 10 years? And we, we're talking about climate change and the breed of dogs and the Iditarod and animal rights and everything that is sort of involved with the sport of dog sledding. Uh, where do you see it in the next decade or so? And I'm interested in your perspective because we've been talking about uh, the sport of dog mushing here going back as far back as 1920s uh, when we started talking about Leonard Seppala and his dogs? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned climate change. You mentioned uh, animal rights. You mentioned, you didn't mention specifically, but the racing scene itself is is definitely changing. Kind of what people are finding interesting and exciting is, is shifting all the time. And some of those might be some some of the reasons for that might be those other things uh, that we mentioned, but I would say where I see this sport going is um, hopefully I, I'd like to see it um, reach a, a broader audience. Uh, I try to constantly sort of tell people a little bit about mushing and um, sort of help them realize that it's not only is it easier to run um, dogs that are willing to do it than most people might think, uh, but there's also all kinds of different niches within the sport. Um, you know, if you want to, if you're a sort of an adrenaline uh, chaser and you want to do a couple of miles of as fast as you can, there's sprint races for it. And if you love just being in the, the backwoods and being peaceful uh, with a team of dogs in front of you. Um, you can do expedition mushing. There's folks who run tours. And obviously, for the folks who are really dedicated, there's there's still mid-distance and long-distance mushing. Um, my hope is that we see uh, all of those little categories of the sport 
start to grow a bit. I've, I've seen some of them, unfortunately, shrink even in my few years being involved in the sport. And I'm hoping that uh, some folks my age and, and even a lot younger than me, even, um, you know, kids in high school and younger even, uh, can find these little individual niches of the sport of mushing um, and go at them with, with a lot of passion and reinvigorate them in some places where they might be sort of shrinking and, and becoming not as accessible. I like it. And of course, there is definitely no wrong answer to that. Everybody has their own perspective for sure. So the next question is, is there one book, blog, or website? And I'm sure you could probably answer this relatively easy since you spend a lot of time researching this breed. But outside of what you're doing with the sled dogs, is there one book, blog, or website that you're spending a lot of time on now and you're really gaining some value from it? Yeah, uh, to name just one is <laughs> that's uh, that's tough. Um, I think the you know my my girlfriend sort of I think can tell where my mind is at by which book I'm carrying around with me in in recent days or weeks. Uh, and most recently, I think it's been uh, the Robert and Pam Thomas book. Um, that came out a number of years ago. They published that a, a few years ago. And it's a long title. Um, it's called Leonard Cephala, The Siberian Dog, and the Golden Age of Sled Dog Racing. Uh, and I think part of the subtitle is also the, the range of years that he covers. Um, but just an incredible wealth of uh, historic knowledge in that book. A lot of really incredible photos from sort of the the early 1900s into the 1940s as well uh, that are in a lot of other places. So a lot of pictures of dogs that some of us might only know as names or some of us might not have even known um, that they existed. Um, it's definitely tough to find. I don't know if it's still in print right now. Um, you might have to kind of hunt for a, a used copy or maybe arrange to borrow somebody's copy. Um, but I would say that that's sort of my uh, my go-to reference, at least in the last maybe month or so. All right, very good. I'm going to try to find that and link it up in the show notes if it's available on Amazon or somewhere like that. Okay, the next question here, we have two more here, Demetrios, before I let you go. The next one is, what are you thankful or grateful for right this minute? Uh, it could be a person, a place, a thing, anything. That's a great question. Um, I think right now I'm definitely thankful for, uh, my family, both the, the family that I've got right here in the house, four-legged and otherwise, and also my extended family. Uh, most of us are here in Vermont, but, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of my family members have taken lots of interest in what I'm doing with the dogs. And, um, I'm just, I'm just happy to have a, a good, uh, a good circle of people around me. Um, and also, a lot of my uh, my fellow Sepala fanciers in the club um, that are I'm constantly learning from uh, and that are always sort of ready to to lend advice and lend uh, lend an ear. I like it for sure. All right. So my last question here is where are you most active on social? Is it uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whereabouts? And then we'll definitely link it up on the show notes. Yeah. Um, well, as far as anything that we talked about tonight, I'm definitely most active on Instagram. I've got a, I've got an Instagram for the sled dogs, um, both mine that I have with me, which is that's sort of what it's geared towards. But uh, I also post about just sort of all the dog related stuff that I'm doing, uh, and that that Instagram tag is at Astara Sled Dogs, uh, all one word, no underscores or anything. All right, and we'll definitely get that to the link up for sure. And for folks that are listening, we talked about uh, Balto and Togo, and a lot of people are very familiar with those names, as we said, from the movies and books and TV shows and all that. But did you know that right here in our backyard at the Iditarod headquarters in Wasilla, Alaska, is the stuffed... Uh, body of Togo. He is right there in the Iditarod headquarters. And if you want to go see who we're talking about 
in quote-unquote real life. Obviously, this dog has been gone for decades now, but the actual Togo is right there in the Iditarod headquarters. So go check it out. I know a lot of people that, that listen to our mushing radio show come up to visit Alaska and you know watch Iditarod start and all that. Head on over to the Iditarod headquarters. Make it part of your trip. They're open year-round. And you can see the type of dog that we're talking about right here on this show. And you will immediately see how much different Togo looks than the Siberian that you're used to. The Siberian that you see on all the commercials, the fluffy white and and one color typically, whether it's red, black, gray, whatever, with the pricked ears and the blue eyes, uh, 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 Togo definitely does not look like your typical Siberian. So I guess I should ask, have you ever been up to Alaska and seen Togo uh, here at Iditarod? I haven't, but I, I sure would like to. The door is open. You're obviously welcome at our kennel anytime you come up. Uh, I just did that trip from uh, from Maine to Alaska just a couple of weeks ago. I went up and visited our buddy Jonathan uh, mid-month in May. So it's definitely doable. It's about a seven or eight hour flight from from Boston to Anchorage. So not too terribly bad as long as it's on the on the red eye for sure. I really appreciate our time today, Demetrios. As as we said, we could probably talk about this for forever. And if you do get a chance to to start that podcast, I would definitely be interested into seeing where that goes and if I could help out in any way with that. Uh, it's definitely a a topic that I would be uh, one to promote for sure. So I want to thank you very much for your time. And if you don't mind, hang on as we say our goodbyes. And uh, with that, on behalf of my guest, this is Robert for Mushing and or Dogworks Radio. Definitely check us out wherever you follow podcasts and be sure to hit that subscribe button and you will never miss an episode. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.